0: Well, um, uh, thank you all for coming. <laughs> um, uh, Matt Russo and I have been um, collaborating for I guess four years now. Um, we both used to work at the Research Triangle Institute in, in um, North Carolina. And it was really only uh, until yesterday Mexico um, assessing the impact of warning labels that contain graphic sort of imagery um, versus warning labels that just contain text um, as a way of trying to promote stronger warning label policy on cigarettes in Mexico. And within nine months now, um, we're actually going to see that kind of. Now that FDA, looks like it's going to have um, uh, regulatory control over tobacco in the U.S., some of the work we're doing in the U.S. has increased salience. And so Matthew's here. Matt is here um, today uh, to, to talk to us a little bit about some of the work he's been doing on nutrition labeling, um, as well as a little bit of the work that we've done on tobacco. And um, yeah, I think that we're also talking about other kinds of collaborations that are going to be growing from this work, including some uh, collaboration that we just put together with and which I imagine will serve as the foundation for um, some NIH proposals that we're already talking about for October. So I think one of the reasons we wanted to have Matt give a presentation was so that the rest of you all could sort of hear uh, a little bit more about this methodology that he is an expert in, so that you can also think about ways in which it can articulate what you do. So I'm going to hand it over to Matt. Great, great. Thanks. Thanks. Well,
1: thanks for having me. Uh, So before I begin, uh, I usually mention the co-authors, in this case it's about 10. Uh, they're listed on the screen. So it's, that wasn't smart. So what I'll, I guess the goal today is to try to attempt to do my best to explain what this method is. I mean, experimental auctions, what, what it is, why is it useful, uh, what has it been used for, and kind of give a broad overview of the experimental economic method, and then go into some specific studies that I've done, and this is where the list of co-authors comes in, and try to show what insights we've gained and then a little bit more on perhaps how could this be used. So to preface, um, I am an economist, so I appreciate you having me here as I'm not invited to many dinner parties anymore. Uh, so if there's something I explain that's too much, I guess, in econ ease, please slow me down and tell me to translate into normal English. So. I mean, the question, and I think a lot of the work that I've done with experimental auctions has looked at the idea of labeling. So how do you choose, how would a government choose the optimal labeling policy? Well, most government agencies want consumer input. I mean, they want some idea of what, when a consumer sees the label, what are they going to do? How are they going to process that information? Two of the more standard methods to get insight from consumers are to use surveys or to do focus groups, but there's some pretty major issues with them that I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, The biggest issue that economists tend to care about is this idea that in a hypothetical survey, the people don't have to pay for what they say. Uh, There's the idea, it's called hypothetical bias, and it's been shown in hundreds of economic studies that if you ask somebody how much would they be willing to pay for a particular product, uh, and it's a hypothetical uh, valuation, what they will write down is considerably higher than if you actually force them to buy it, so if you put them in a real financial situation. Uh, So that's really where economists came much more interested in this idea of experimental auctions. Experimental economics in general, uh, I mean the auctions are kind of a subset of experimental economic methods. They really became popular in the 60s. Uh, Vernon Smith won the 2002 Nobel Prize for this, so this is now an accepted method among economists. Thousands of articles, there's a website that does its best to track all of them. I'm not certain how well it's doing anymore, as it's kind of had an exponential growth. So as of the year 2000, there were maybe 2,000 articles, uh, whether they were, not all were peer-reviewed journals, but working papers of some sort. I think this past year, it's probably been close to 2,000 that have been written. So the growth of this has uh, been exponential. And experimental auctions have become popular within uh, this kind of as a subfield of experimental economic methods in general. Two areas that have really gained a lot of insight from experimental auction methods are agricultural economics, which is kind of the background I came from. And like a, one of the main studies we started with was on genetically modified foods. So that kind of an issue that really concerns agricultural economists, Uh, and also environmental economists, the idea on labeling of environmental products, or how would you best label to inform consumers or to prompt consumers to make a particular environmentally friendly purchase. So what I hope to do, describe this method, uh, and then after describing the method, go through some specific studies. One study, I will go through the design in quite a bit of detail, along with the results, and then some other studies, time permitting. I'm not going to go into the design, but I'll just say these are some other results we've gotten from this. So Before I do this, uh, the best way to learn about auctions is in general by doing. Uh, As much as I just talked about hypothetical ones, we will make this hypothetical. uh, But I'd like everybody to pull out a sheet of paper and a writing utensil, or if you don't have one, Try to borrow one from the person next to you. <clears throat> so before you write anything down, and I don't see uh, anything to write, let's see, they're dry erase, I think. Str- yeah, yeah. These are dry erase, so wet erase, okay. So. so what we'll do here is, I'll do a, a slightly simpler auction method Since we're a little bit constrained for time. So this is called the second price auction. So we'll auction, and this will be hypothetical. We won't do this for real. But the product that I will ask you to place your bid on is a ice cold bottle of Diet Coke. Part of the reason it's hypothetical is if I don't start drinking something, my throat will get very dry. But you have an empty (laughs) glass? Okay. So The second price auction, uh, the way that this auction works, it's probably not anything that you've done before, but it's relatively simple. Uh, The top bidder wins. So the top bidder in the second price auction would win the auction. Uh, But the key thing about the second price auction, you wouldn't pay the price you wrote down. You would pay the price of the second highest bidder. So you pay, the second highest bid price. So the top person, the top bidder would win in this auction, but you don't pay the amount that you write down. You would pay the amount of the second highest bidder. If there was a tie, we would flip a coin. In this case, I won't flip the coin since we're doing this hypothetically. But if everybody could go ahead then and write down their bid for this lovely ice cold bottle of diet soda that And once you have the bids written down, um, put some sort of an identifier, like some number or some way to, I'll write up your ID. You could throw out any number you would like or a couple letters if you would like. And if you want to write your name up there, that's fine. Your bid won't be anonymous anymore. And once you've written down your bid and some sort of an identification number or letter or name, So the process of this, and this is not that different than the studies that we've done in with actual consumers for actual products. You take all of the bids, you sort them from highest to lowest, which I'm doing right now. And in this case, wow, you guys are making my job easy. You're illustrating my point nicely. Uh, The highest, Bids here are let's see, I'm trying to see which ID them are. Okay. The ID number Coke two oh one bid two dollars and a penny. The ID number twelve bid a dollar sixty-five. And JT, who I'm pretty certain I know who this is, <laughs> bid $1.30, and a number of people bid $1.25. I won't go any farther. So if this were really happening, if this were a real auction and not hypothetical, number Coke 201 would win the purchase this bottle of soda and would pay me $1.65 for the beverage. Mention the idea of hypothetical values on this and uh, done a pretty good job of illustrating the problem with a hypothetical survey, as we just got a bid here of 201, 165, and 130. If you take about a 20-step walk, you can go up to the beverage machine and buy one for Uh, $1.25. So the idea of hypothetical bias, I just told you about it, and yet we still see it in a hypothetical valuation mechanism. This is a large reason why uh, the experimental auction method can be really good at uh, revealing demand. So the experimental design for the first, uh, the first uh, kind of topic we'll discuss was for fair trade foods. Uh, anybody familiar with the issue of fair trade foods or fair trade coffee? Uh, so it's, I mean, the general idea is uh, there's a number of people in this country who think that farmers in third world countries either a make too little or b are working under kind of labor conditions that aren't acceptable. And the idea of fair trade uh, is that you would purchase these products, usually pay a slightly higher price, but then the farmers in third world countries would get a significantly higher uh, income and also have better working conditions. So we wanted to see what happened for fair trade foods, set up tables at two grocery stores in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, The reason for Harrisburg is pretty close to where uh, I Work in uh, Susquehanna University. The second reason Harrisburg is Harrisburg's actually very representative of the country as a whole in general. I mean, if you look at kind of the percentages of uh, minorities and various groups, it's pretty demographically representative. Also, a pretty reasonable age split. It's not like it's dominated by a college as Columbia probably is and other areas might be. Uh, So, we set up two tables at grocery stores in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, posted signs offering shoppers $10 if they would stop by and help us out for 10 to 15 minutes. We pay them in cash. Uh, It's kind of the incentive fee to get people to show up. So a table not unlike this, there'd be some signs in front of it, some signs behind it. You try to catch people as they enter. Uh, Participants bid on products in an actual auction. And the actual auction is pretty important as if bids are hypothetical, you can get this idea of hypothetical bias, and the auction mechanism that we will deal with won't have this problem. Now, this is what's called a field experiment. We went to grocery stores. Uh, so we were, it's called in the being in the field. We weren't, there's a different type of experiment that I'll also describe called a laboratory experiment. That would be more like a setting, like a classroom. So the two types of ways you could run auctions, you could bring people into a group like this, The benefit of that is it's a lot more controlled. The drawback is it usually costs a lot more money because you have to get people from wherever they are ahead of time to show up to a location. The benefit of going to a grocery store or uh, some other setting in the field is that type of setting, you're just picking people off for 10 or 15 minutes. The term economists will use is their opportunity cost is a lot less. Uh, They don't have to kind of set plans well in advance block off a, a significant amount of time getting to and from a place, they're right there. Uh, so it, it costs less. The other benefit of running field experiments is uh, people were bidding on bananas and chocolate in this experiment. Uh, grocery stores where you normally buy bananas and chocolate. If we came in here and sold bananas and chocolate, this isn't exactly the environment you usually purchase those items. I don't think. Maybe some things go on here that I don't know about. But. Now the auction mechanism we used here is a little bit different than the second price auction. It's, it's called the becker de Groot marshak auction. Technically, it's called a mechanism. It's not really an auction. Uh, it's very similar, though, to an auction. So everybody would bid on the product, much like you did just now. Uh, instead of just saying the top bidder wins and pays the second highest price, though, in the becker groot marshak auction, you basically have a lottery bin. Um, and we're doing some right now at the Piggly Wiggly for cigarettes. And we have a kind of a lottery bin with little laminated slips and it goes in dime increments. Uh, this experiment went from $0.10 cents to $6. So after the participant bids, they get to draw. They would draw what the price is. If the participant bids less than the price they draw. So <laughs> wet, erase. Oh, wet erase, OK. <laughs> no, I'm um, OK. I'll just use this side of the board. So if a participant bids, let's say you have somebody, we had uh, a 3.5 ounce chocolate bar, say somebody bid $2 on the fair trade chocolate bar. If you draw a higher price, so it goes up to $6. So let's say if you draw something like um, $5 and 40 cents. Well, in this case, the participant would not purchase the product. The idea behind the bid is it should represent what they're willing to pay for the product. If they say, I'll pay $2 for the bananas, and you pull out a price of $5.40, they're not willing to pay that amount, they don't buy the product. If you, so in this case, they wouldn't purchase. But if you, pur- if you draw at a lower price, so let's say you draw at a price of 40 cents, in this case, they said, I'm, I'm willing to pay $2 for the product. You pull out a price of 40 cents, uh, that price is lower, so they would purchase the product. What makes this auction what's called demand revealing, or it is in a participant's best interest to think about how much should I pay and write down that exact amount, is the fact that they don't pay this amount they write down, they would pay the lower price that you pull out. So if a participant bids $2, if you draw higher, they don't buy the product. But if they draw any of those slips of paper from a dime all the way up to $2, they would purchase the product. So I guess the equal counts here. So in this case, uh, bidding $2, there's still a chance they could get a product at a really low price. In most auctions where you would write down a bid and that's the price that you would pay, it's in your best interest to bid a little bit lower to try to get a good deal on the product. In this case, there's no reason you would want to do that because the, the price that you pay isn't what you write down necessarily. It's, whatever, it's the luck of the draw. And if you think the chocolate's worth $2, and you bid a dollar instead. Well, there's a series of prices between one dollar and two dollars that could be pulled. And if those are pulled, maybe it's a dollar twenty. If you bid a dollar for it, you aren't buying the chocolate. You thought the chocolate was worth two dollars. If you only bid a dollar, uh, you're foregoing what you would think is a profitable purchase at $1.20. dollar twenty. Uh, so in this case, no participant. You can actually prove this more formally if you'd want, but. Uh, no participant could ever do better than thinking, what's the most that I would be happy to pay right at this moment for the product, and write that number down. So you avoid this issue of hypothetical bias, on one sense, where they shouldn't, participants shouldn't be bidding too high, but you also avoid the, what you have in some other auctions where you may want to bid a little bit low to try to get a good deal. Participants can do no better than by bidding what they want, truly want to pay. Sorry. No, no problem. So- not necessarily, when you pull people forward, let's say somebody comes up and says, but I'm allergic to chocolate. Mm -hmm. We'd say you should bid zero or I mean, if if you're, if it's chocolate, if you have kids who like chocolate Mm -hmm. and you had some demand for it, maybe to give to your children, then you could bid some amount, but it's, it's whatever kind of comprises whatever you really think that's worth. So for some people it is zero um, for, for the various products. Some people come through, and bid zero. In this work with the graphic labels images, there are some people who bid $5 for a pack of Newports that have, I don't know what kind of label packages that you have here. Do you have, do you have them all? Okay. Here, I'll tell you. So there's some people who see this pack of Marlboro Lights and they'll bid $5. I don't know what they cost here. but Okay. So they think I like Marlboro Lights, I'll pay $5, and that's what they should be bidding. And then they see this pack and they think that's just disgusting and awful and I won't pay anything for that pack and they bid zero. And that's fine, I mean that's what they truly think of the pack at that time. So that was my
2: other question, so were these people bidding on multiple kinds of
1: bananas? Yes, yep, and I'll get into that in a moment here. And they only had $10 to spend? Well, we limited their purchases to one product so they wouldn't have to worry about that as much. And it's it's not even the idea of the $10 that concerns us as much as, the idea, if you own a bunch of I mean, bananas in particular, this is really important. If you own a bunch of one bunch of bananas already, that second bunch, well, it could spoil. It may not be worth as much to you. So we limited the amount that they could consume to the one bunch. So, so what, are
2: the, what are the participants told about the generation
1: of the prices? About how the prices are drawn? Uh, they're shown the little bin. We have a little, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a a miniature drawer system, like a plastic thing that you might put in pins, or I don't know if you know how to describe that better, a piece of, okay, I mean it's maybe about that high and it has three drawers, and you just pull out, there's one drawing to see which actual product you're bidding on, so for the participants in this auction, it would say round one or round two, and if they bid on this in round one and this in round two, whichever round they pull tells you which one they're bidding on. And then the second one, and we go through a practice auction before, has the prices, and the prices go from a dime to $10 in that experiment, and...
2: So are they told that the prices will go from... Yes. Are
1: they told that it's uniform? Uh, they're, they're not, we don't use the word uniform. We say that there's a slip in there for every dime increment. Okay. So, if somebody knows enough about statistics, they could implicitly figure that out. But <laughs> I don't think that the cigarette smokers were figuring that one out. We just <laughs> You, you kind of describe it almost like a lottery or a bingo draw, I think, to them on that, which helps make them think it's entertaining and hopefully cooperate and be good. Other questions before I... Well, how, how is it... I'm just thinking about how people would try to gain this. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it
2: matter what the actual price is that they're used to paying?
1: Yes. Yeah, they should not be bidding more than what it is in the store. Right? I mean, for... I mean, if, if this pack costs $5 in the store, if they bid, there's, it's not really gaming it, but it wouldn't be very rational for the participant to bid $7, right? I mean, because if they bid $7 for something that they could buy in the store for $5, there's a reasonable chance, I mean, in this case, it's a 20% chance since it's a uniform distribution, that they could pay more than they really like to pay for the product. And whereas if they bid $5, Anytime it was drawn between $0.10 and $5, they're just as happy because they still get the pack and for that same price. However, when it's between $5 and $7, they're no longer unhappy about um, having to purchase it for too high of a price.
0: And, uh, I think another thing is the upper limit tends to be about twice the market value. So the market
2: value is kind of centered Oh, mm. right okay, that's what I was wondering. Right? Okay. Because otherwise, if that's worth $5 and the upper is $6, I'm going to bid $6. You could. Because I've got a far better chance of getting it a lower price than it actually costs in the
0: store. Then. You
1: could. However, you would be no better than bidding five. Because if you bid five, you're still going to get it any time it comes between a dime and five dollars. There's one other thing that I don't know that was I mentioned yet. But it's not just the highest in a group. So if everybody here was bidding on the Becker to group Marshak, um, one, two, three, four, and there are eight. Yesterday, uh, the ladies who are doing this actually had eight people for one group. Um, it, if we draw out 20 cents, everybody gets the, everybody who bids more than 20 cents, which is almost everybody. I mean, these are cigarettes and we're dealing with smokers. Everybody wins. So we, we do tell pretty explicitly, you're not bidding against each other. You're bidding against this random lotto draw. So if you bid $6 and you and you know it's worth 5 to you, there's a one in six chance that you're going to pay more than you think it's worth now the rest of the time you'll still win and you'll get it at a good deal. However, if you had just bid five dollars instead, you still win every time you think it's a good deal, but there's not that one in six chance that you pay too much now, is it perfect at getting every participant to do that? I'm sure it's not, but it do, it certainly there are a lot of participants who really It forces real financial incentives. So if participants do, I I guess the word would be misbehave, they're financially punished, or at least they could be financially punished. And we go through a practice one to try to show that first and then with the real one. Does it completely eliminate what we would call misbehavior? I'm sure it doesn't, but it cuts it down dramatically.
0: Yeah, and the the practice round is critical too, because that really is an opportunity to see how the whole thing unfolds without suffering anybody
1: yeah, sometimes you can do practice ones. I've done some practice ones where it's real and some where it's not. And either way, I think, works about the same. Is so there's
2: but, the potential for the experiment to fail if, if you bring all non-smokers to the
1: table? We 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 don't recruit non-smokers for. I
2: thought I understood you before to say that, that you could still
1: buy bananas even if you <clears> Yeah, for the bananas and chocolate, we just said shoppers. Any shopper could show up. Uh, nobody said they don't like either. There were a couple people who bid zero for everything. and. Uh, Those are pretty easy. You usually almost, I mean, the biggest comparison often is the difference in bid prices between the two. It's not just what they say they'll bid for this. So, If somebody bids zero, that's pretty easy to handle. It's just kind of worthless and you more or less just throw it out. So for um, for the fair trade food experiments, we had participants bid on fair trade bananas, conventional bananas, fair trade chocolate, and conventional chocolate bar. And as I mentioned earlier, there were, they bid on these actually twice, uh, but at most they could win one product. So there was a draw for one product to purchase. The idea we didn't want them worrying about coming home with more than one product. For the chocolate bar, it may not matter as much, but I mean. For the bananas, it, it really would. And even for the chocolate bar, it could matter somewhat. The, the term, I mean, for any, if anybody's had like principles of microeconomics, it's the it's a demand curve effect. If you own one unit, your value for the second unit is usually a bit lower. So by forcing only one item, uh, we avoid the idea of their bids dropping because they think they may already win the same item. So here was the chocolate bars. We made these as plain as possible. So this was the non-fair trade chocolate. Just said imported milk, chocolate, and the weights. Uh, the fair trade chocolate, we, had th- we tried three different labels. One just said fair trade, nothing else. And you see this is a pretty generic label.
2: Why
1: did you change the color uh, They were different bars. So this was an actual conventional chocolate bar that we were able to purchase. we could have dealt with some re-wrapping perhaps, but we felt that 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 probably wasn't worth, we didn't think that that was worth us getting in and contaminating the product. I I don't know how to do that stuff. All we had to do with this one was pull the little sleeve off and put the new sleeve on, and that was, so for the fair trade chocolate uh, came in a gold. So this, we weren't lying to participants on this one. These were, one of them really was conventional and one was fair trade. Uh, So this one just says fair trade, and then we have labels that are a bit more elaborate. One says uh, buy fair trade and make a difference in your global community with the neat little fair trade certified symbol from one of the certification companies. And the third one had even more information. So by choosing this fair trade product, you're directly supporting a better life for farming families through fair prices, direct trade, community development, and environmental stewardship. So, these were the generic and the three types of fair trade labels that we had in this experiment. Now, each participant bid on the generic or the non fair trade product, but then when they bid on the fair trade product, they only saw one of the labels. So, we varied this by participant. So, if we had we, the first couple of people who came through, they might have bid on the fair trade, uh, they might have bid on the non-fair trade milk chocolate, and then the fair trade bar that just says fair trade. Uh, The next couple who come through might bid on the non-fair trade product, but then the one with the longest label. And then the next ones would bid on the one with the medium label. So we really wanted to try a couple things. One, what's the effect of fair trade? And two, is there a difference across labels? So does the label matter? So here were, I guess, the labeling treatments. You could bid on the non-fair trade product and then the fair trade with the generic label with or with the mid-length label or with the long label and based on when you showed up it was one of those three products. So participants bid first on all four products and then we gave them information. So we gave them just a short sheet of information. We really It's a pretty tedious process. I mean, I guess it it doesn't have to be, but we made it one to try to find what we thought was objective information. So we had a number of people who had no financial ties to fair trade foods or the food industry in general approve this, uh, but these were all individuals who were knowledgeable about fair trade foods in one form or another. One was the chaplain of our university who um, knows a lot about fair trade and runs trips down to... um, Costa Rica, and kind of very involved in that. The mayor of Gambier, Ohio, who is a proponent of fair trade foods, kind of read these, this information. So was, the goal was to be objective and truthful and verif- basically verifiable information about fair, fair trade. So it promotes international labor, labor environmental, social standards. Uh, minimum price supports are common. NGOs can play a role. So the order of bidding, everybody placed a bid on all four products. So you, everybody in here just placed one bid. In the experiment, there were four bid sheets. And everybody filled out a bid on each of the four separate bid sheets. We collected them, we gave them information on fair trade foods, and then they bid again, knowing at most they're going to win one of the eight products. And this, I guess, was the steps in the experiment. Uh, They show up, they say, yes, I'll do it. They sign a consent form, receive their packet. We explain the auction mechanism. Uh, Once we explain and they have the chance to ask questions, we do the practice trial with candy bars. Then they're thrown into one of the three treatments. From there, um, we do the draw to see if they won the auction. Finally, they do a short questionnaire. So questions, comments, concerns about the design. No, we, well, we brought we brought enough so that if if we ran in, I mean, if, from our point of view, if it's kind of, it, I mean, in many ways, it's almost like gambling from our end. Of, uh, how much, how many bananas to bring? Uh, we brought enough that if disaster struck and a far greater than average number of people were drawing the low numbers, the low prices, which means if, I mean, if people draw the ten cents, twenty cents, thirty cents more often, they're going to win, and we're going to have to give them the product. Uh, we brought far more to the point where we had. B- I think, two and a half boxes of bananas that we brought home. Um, And I mean, I I brought them into the university. And I think, I mean, people think I'm strange in general. And there's some reason for that. But when I sent out an email to my building saying, free bananas, come pick them up in the third third floor of Steel Hall. um, So we brought enough extra. And with the cigarette experiments, I don't know if you've gone by Jim's office at all recently, but there's mounds of cigarettes. and now we have many sites with that one. So, hopefully by the end we're not there with too many extras. And thankfully stores sell cigarettes. So, if we run a bit low, we're not in too big of a problem, but with the fair trade bananas and the fair trade chocolate, we we well, I
2: was just thinking if there's limited quantity like there's no scarcity, <laughs> right. What? There's no scarcity.
1: No, not for them. Right. No.
2: So for the No, yeah,
1: we just told them that if, I mean, we, we explained to them that they're not bidding against each other, so if there's a chance that nobody could win or everybody could win. Uh, I, I don't know that we, we mentioned scarcity. I don't think we actually do mention that, but it, it usually isn't an issue. Some people do ask, do need us to clarify that they're not bidding against each other.
2: like because uh, it's a competition. Is it yeah. A, there's only so a scared amount and everybody can <clears throat> bid on the Yes, yep. if there's a small amount. Of. Sure, so sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't, think, um, I don't think that's ever, it's never seemed to be an issue, but that's a good point to, if, it, if it were to ever come up. So other, other questions on the design? So I'll briefly go through, because, wow, I have five minutes left according to what I heard on, uh, before questions come up. Uh, so here's the characteristics of the participants. Uh, I don't know that this is necessarily an earth shattering uh, the income's a tad lower than what you see in the Harrisburg area in general, but other than that, for those who go to a grocery store, this is probably pretty close to what you might see. And here were the bids. So these were the bids before the information was given. So, how much of a premium did consumers place on fair trade food products? So, this is, I mean, really, we didn't, the fair trade. F- Food industry really didn't help us out much. They helped us give us some information, but it's not like they were funding this or anything. But I mean, this is really what they'd like to see. Um, one of the things, like, what kind of a premium are we looking at? Well, overall, eight cent and fourteen cent premium. Yeah, if you start to look at the percentage terms, it's probably seven percent and eleven percent for the two products. So it's not necessarily an enormous premium, but it's statistically significant and. I mean, if grocery stores could make an extra 5 to 10% on their products, they'd be a whole lot wealthier than they would be now. So it's not something that they would necessarily sneeze at. Uh, when you start to look at where that difference is coming from, though, it's not uniform. It's not like everybody's bidding an, an extra dime for the fair trade food product. In fact, the median shopper is willing to pay nothing more. The median shopper's bid for the fair trade food is exactly the same as the bid for the conventional food product. So the the median shopper, over 50% of shoppers just don't care. You know, They see the fair trade, they see the regular, the products look identical, they assume they'll taste identical, uh, and they bid the same amount. But you do have a small percentage of shoppers who are willing to pay a whole lot more for the product. Uh, The 20% level. So 20% of shoppers were willing to pay at least 20 cents more for the bananas and 50 cents more for the chocolate bar in the top 10% and that's like a 50% premium. So, I mean what we take out of this is that uh, Consumers as a whole, at least in this area from our shoppers, don't necessarily want to be mandated to buy fair trade foods But there's a significant amount of shoppers who really would pay a lot extra for this so there's probably some room for expansion if you're in a kind of a grocery store to perhaps market fair trade foods a little bit more. And we ran this uh, 2006. Since then, it has expanded some already. So Were
2: there any who
1: paid who um, the price went down? Uh, yes, some people paid a little bit less. They just didn't know. Uh, not many, but uh, there's a, there was a small subset who did. There was another small subset and I only talk briefly about the results on each of these because I'm going to talk about more than one. There was a small subset that they first saw the label that said fair trade and they bid more for it. And then they got the information and their bid went down. And the best explanation we could think of is they saw fair trade and they might have thought of like it was what Lou Dobbs talks about, like is this fair for American workers or something like that. That's the best kind of explanation we could think of. We didn't think there's anything in the information that would give anybody a negative impression about fair trade foods. Your
2: post, your didn't have, didn't have- we didn't have
1: that. No. Now, part of the problem is we didn't. That didn't even cross our minds to do it. Which uh, unfortunate. Part of the problem, though, even if that was something we had thought about, you're kind of. The grocery stores are very nice to let you in, and you pay the people money, and you really. If if you hold them up too long, they'll so they would start to complain. So. You do kind of have to scoot that pretty fast through. But that's something afterwards we really would have liked to have known exactly why. But, but we, we, don't, we don't know that. That's just a, our best guess. So I'll probably, I mean, I think I'm going to skip through this little section, uh, just the brief overview. This is much more, I guess, of the econ- economics type to look at the actual dollar loss. It compares the three labels and looks at which labels best or least inform consumers. And the idea is we looked at their bids before and after getting more information. So uh, the idea, and I'm sure most of you know this, is a label that has the most information isn't automatically better, because consumers may only spend so much time processing the information when they read a given label. Uh, So it isn't automatically the most information, we wanted to try to set up an experiment, one, to find it out for fair trades, and two, nobody had really done this before, so we wanted to see is there a general method we could set up where we can have a whole bunch of different labels and figure out which one best informs consumers. Because if we can figure this out, that could be really applicable, not just for this study, but perhaps as a method in the future for things like cigarette or nutrition labeling. So I'll Okay, Actually, no, I didn't put in numbers, so I, all I do have is an overview in here, so I don't have to skip this. So what we found is that the, what we call the welfare loss to consumers, um, and the idea, and this comes from more upper level, well, I guess it's introduced in the Principles of Economics courses, but the idea of consumer surplus for um, the idea of how much more would you have paid for the product than you have to pay, kind of the value consumers get out of the product. We look at, if a label doesn't inform you very well, you may indeed purchase a product when you would have been happier with a different product. Uh, using our methods, we found that it ranged from uh, three to eight cents for the bananas, 10 to 13 cents for the chocolate bar. Uh, the highest cost for labels occurred with the generic labels, but unfortunately, after we, re- we did this, we realized we didn't have enough of a sample size, we think. We think it's a sample size issue that Caused the differences not to be statistically significant across groups. I mean, we had 150 or so, some of them were in a control group. So we had just over 40 or so participants in each treatment. And then we have to do a cross sample tests. And we saw some differences, but uh, they weren't statistically, they looked very different, but they weren't statistically significant. Anything on the fair trade foods before I briefly describe some of the other studies we've done? Okay, so did some auctions with genetically modified foods. Uh, This was kind of the dissertation project. Uh, A fair number of papers came out of this. Uh, I'll discuss one briefly. This was a laboratory experiment. So people were brought into a room like this. Uh, The auction there was the nth price auction. It's very similar to the BDM mechanism. I won't go into that now, though. What we looked at in the, what I'll talk about now is tolerance levels for genetically modified foods. I don't know how much you know about the issue of genetically modified foods in general. The U.S. stance is we just don't care, um, and I think there's uh, some relatively good reason for that in the sense that there's been in the U. Well, at this point now they've been in the U.S. for 10 years, and there's no evidence of a single person ever being sick from it. So uh, the uh, the, uh, there's an issue in this, though. The level of tolerance. Should there be labeling? If you want to label your product as non-genetically modified, which you can do, uh, how much GM content could get in the product before you can't label it as such? And across different countries, this varies. Uh, in Europe, it's one percent. So if you're next to a field that has genet- that genetically modified crops, and so there's some kind of cross pollination, or I don't know the terms for this, but you know. Drifting? Is that the...? Genetic drift. That, that sounds right. Um, as long as it's less than 1%, you can still label it as... Or you st- in Europe, actually, you have to label it as GM, so you can keep the GM label off your product as long as it's under 1%. Japan, it's 5%. Most countries are 1% or 5%. The U.S. doesn't have a tolerance standard defined. They didn't when I ran these way back in 2001, and they still don't, to the best of my knowledge. So, uh, what we did in this experiment, consumers bid on food products differentiated by labels. Some said non GM, certified free of non GM material. These were actually organic, which by rule, you have to have no GM material if these are organic uh, products. Uh, We had participants bid on potatoes, vegetable oil, and what was the third product? Tortilla chips uh, were the three products. The other said, this product's non GM, but up to X percent of the material could be genetically modified. So we're saying it could be up to 1 percent or 5 percent. Different. Some participants bid on the certified non GM and the 1 percent tolerant GM products, others the certified non GM and the 5 percent tolerant GM products. The labels were very generic. We stripped the products of all labels. And this is all that they had. Uh, the results. Participants were willing to pay a bit more for the product that had no GM content. So the fact that it was certified free of any content mattered. Once there was a small amount of content, though, we found no difference, at least no statistically significant difference, between the 1% and 5% GM-tolerant foods. So, I mean, the results here would tend to indicate consumers, on average, cared. They did, they did pay a little bit more if it was non-GM completely. But once some GM content was allowed, they didn't seem to care whether it was a 1% threshold or a 5% threshold for some, I guess, genetic drift. Questions? And finally, this is the, the work with Jim and five other co-authors on that paper? Okay. Five other people who I've never met nor spoken to, and I couldn't even tell you the names of anybody on there now. But I'm sure they're all very nice people. So. <laughs> uh, this was auctions. I say we. I really mean Jim. Um, I, Jim conducted auctions with 89 Mexican smokers. Uh, everybody bid on two packs of cigarettes, uh, one with and one without this beautiful graphic image that you'll see. And what is it? Smoking will cause a slow and painful death. Okay. So, and this was using the random nth price auction. I mean, the quick description, instead of just being the second price, we would do a draw. So it could be the second price is the highest, it could be all the way down to the lowest price. Every participant who bids higher uh, than whatever bid is chosen. So if you have the fifth highest bid in this room, and there were eight people, if we draw an uh, eight, indicating the eighth highest bid is the price, the top seven people would win the auction and purchase the cigarettes. Uh, the and it, the price would be set by whatever the eighth bidder was. If it's if we draw two, well, in that case, only it, one person wins and they pay the second highest price. So, the order participants saw the pack was varied to examine ordering effects. Here's the results. You can also find up on the bulletin board up there. So I'll skim through that. Uh, I guess the quick and dirty explanation on what happened. Uh, both male and female smokers, they saw that image and they did not want the cigarettes as much. They bid less for that pack of cigarettes, but the impact on female smokers was greater. So there, uh, other than that though, there was no evidence of any other variables. It wasn't, I mean, it was a pretty small sample size, 89, 89 smokers, so it's not, not necessarily going to find too many variables affecting things. The this, this study we're doing now, we're hoping to get 500 participants. Uh, the, yes, from what we heard yesterday, out of the 561 participants that we had, vast majority were African-American, which is good. Um, because when we did the 120 in Sealands Grove, we had exactly one African-American. This is a very rural, white Pennsylvania area, so we were happy. But getting far more African-Americans here We'll hopefully, offset that. We're doing these in uh, San Diego as well to hopefully get uh, a decent portion, a decent sample of Hispanics or Latinos. So, to conclude, kind of everything, experimental auctions can play a pretty valuable role in determining how consumers react to labels. So, we've shown a few examples of this, but I mean, there's a lot more. I mean, what I've been doing much more in the past couple of years is trying to take these economic methods and work with folks like Jim and Christine who aren't economists and try to see what kind of in- insights can we get into cigarette labeling and uh, labeling for beverages and uh, other types of issues that aren't necessarily economic issues, but the methods really carry over very well into them. Um, so what are some uses? How does information affect consumer preferences? It's mentioned briefly, but you can give some consumers some information, others different information. How do they react? Uh, you could also use those methods to assess a value of information. That I mean, as an economist, I really enjoy that. But if you're trying to sell to policymakers, that look, if we have this information on the website and perhaps distribute it, perhaps post a placard at where cigarettes are sold, saying this particular information, it would have a value of. X billion dollars to those particular individuals. That it's the kind of you know those are the numbers that policymakers may want to hear. Also determining perhaps which labeling guidelines might best inform consumers. Uh, is another option. There's more, but kind of a brief introduction. So, willing to take any questions, comments, criticisms, advice. I think one of
0: the things that I wanted to is comment on. triangulating the results from the experimental auctions, which are in some ways what we call the traditional econometric black box approach to behavior, where you don't pay that much attention to what's going on inside people's heads other than the the price, which presumably reflects their behavior. And so for the cigarette auctions, Submitted as of 11.30, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to be following up auctions with focus groups. And so one of the things that's kind of exciting is to what extent are these methods telling us the same type of things and how,
1: how can they complement each other? Or does a complement? One thing with the cigarette auctions, what, the, what this method will do a very, very good job of is whatever you're willing to pay right now for it, for whatever reason, you should get that. From a vast majority of participants, you really should get that. Uh, one issue that we have in this study, and I think getting this uh, backup information on what people are thinking, having people say what's the effectiveness, there's been a couple people who have looked at the labels. And one person yesterday, when I was doing it, was, was the first person, which made me think it was going to be a really rough day yesterday. Said, oh, they looked at the gr- they first bid on I think maybe this one, or it was one of the ones without an image, and they placed a bid, and then they. We're shown this one to bid on. And I think the exact quote was, oh, that's sick. That's disgusting. I want that pack. And they actually bid <laughs> it more to get this pack. Not because they would want this always, but they hadn't seen it before. So the novelty of this, actually, I think getting this information at the end is going to help us out a lot in figuring out what to do. It's not a huge number who have done that, but, but, but it is a few people. And so it's not trivial. and. Uh, whatever number we come up with, we're saying the demand drops. If it's the whole sample, that's likely going to be an underestimate because you've had some people there who have said how... Well, yeah, the one... I mean, he was probably 20... I think he was 20 years old. He said he wanted it to give it to his mom. I I don't know quite why. I don't know. Um, But you get... I mean, you deal with all types. I mean, you're dealing with the public, so... One person said... (laughs) One person said that they didn't think this image would affect, I mean, so talking, this, I don't know how they bid, but the, one of the questions was, how do you, do you think this would keep children from quitting smoking? And they said, um, no, because I think that looks like pizza and kids like pizza. Which <laughs> Ashley responded to Morgan after they left is, I feel sorry for that lady because I have no idea what kind of sick pizza she <laughs> eats. Uh, so you deal, you get all types, but... I mean it's kind of stunning because it seems like it's total chaos when you run these. And you plug in all of the bids and all of a sudden you get a pretty interesting story. Even though it's, I mean you're up there in the total chaos and three or four people bidding at a time. and I mean you just show them the pack and have them place on the bid. And have you ever done these
2: with different kinds of products? Like we, one thing we've been throwing around lately is bananas cheaper than a candy bar. But mm-hmm.
1: So I'm, I'm sure it could. I'm trying to think of the way to I'm trying to think of the best way to do it. You, I mean any two com- products you'd like to compare, you could I mean we got bids on bananas and bids on chocolate bars, mm-hmm. so we kind of get an idea of what their demand for each was on that. We didn't necessarily compare to see what was their bid for one versus the other based on now how would that change if if instead of giving information on fair trade foods, we gave information on on snacking, and how perhaps it's not wise to have an abundance of chocolate in your everyday diet, um, could that, we, we could have probably had a nice measure on how that affected things so off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more, but yeah. Sure. You know, we didn't look at that with this, with the bananas and chocolate data, but there's no reason we couldn't. I mean, we even still have the data set to look at. Did the maybe look at the difference? What what was their bid for the bananas? What was their bid for the chocolate? And just take a difference between the two. Sometimes it'll be positive. Sometimes it would be negative, and then compare. And you could it would be a, you could run a simple test to see how to, did that change based on income changing. I don't think we even thought of doing that, but. Uh,
0: it divided your your, um, your population into three groups, you know, those who didn't change, those who changed a lot, those who changed
1: a whole lot. From the information, or? Okay, for,
0: well, not not from the information, I'm thinking about um, just the, the bid, the amount of
1: difference. Okay. Sure, right. sure. Right? You had those three different groups. Um, presumably, you could profile those three different groups. The, the, those who, I'm sorry, those who changed a lot. I, so
0: those, you had the 50% of people. Oh, sure. Well, that, involved. yeah.
1: So that's for the fair trade. uh, Like how many bid more for the fair trade? Yeah, you could profile that, I'm sure. But I'm even thinking simpler than that. Ignore the fair trade. I mean, we we got a bid for conventional bananas and conventional chocolate from everybody. So just what's the simple, what's the difference in the bid prices between the two? Uh, And, you know, some people would pay, let me go back to that, the averages on that. So some people for the non-fair trade bananas, the average bid was a dollar twenty-one. For the non-fair trade chocolate, it was one twenty-seven. So the mean difference there would be six cents. But presumably we have a lot of consumers in there who bid more for the bananas than the chocolate, and a lot who, and then of, you know of course probably a majority bid a little bit more for the chocolate. I, I mean I don't know how that's skewed. How does that change based on income? I mean or any other factor. So
0: have you ever seen any studies um, that compare specifically across products, the difference across products? Like
1: this? I'm trying to think if I have. I don't know that I have. I, it, from an economist point of view, there wouldn't be much reason why. There wouldn't be a reason why you couldn't do this, though. And you could have the question of context. That, um, you want people to pick something out of the vending machine. Yeah. Your option versus, so, I mean, they were... More. We had a table about this size, I mean, and that's where they come into the grocery store, where a lot of people that day actually were planning to buy bananas and or chocolate. But, um, you know, it's just right at the front, and that's where they were placing their bids. So So
0: you can imagine doing this kind of a a routine within a product category, too. So I'm not thinking about sweet and beverage stuff. The difference between the healthy and the healthy. Yeah,
1: between sun chips or... or I don't know if sun chips are necessarily better, but like the low fat, uh, the baked to versus, baked, uh, versus baked. the regular toast. Or people's perception that Snapple is a healthy drink. So you have Snapple and 100% fruit Sure.
0: It's kind of lovely. Yeah.
1: None yeah. of our aims <coughs> are specifically to talk about products. No. We have, well, no, we submit If we hadn't hit submit,
0: we have one hour. <laughs> If
1: we hadn't hit submit, we would have one full hour to still do this, but waiting till 11.30 to submit a proposal when it's due at three isn't my idea of fun. <laughs> well, you were talking about reasons that some of
2: the people might really value fair trade after mm-hmm. more information. I was just thinking about a paper that Christine recently shared with me about food identities, and They had they were looking at soy consumers in this case, so they were wondering who are all the types of people eat soy. Okay. Huh. people that they had talked about. And I, I just wonder if after reading the
1: label, some people thought, I'm not that kind of person. That, that could yeah. be. That could be. I mean, I mean I mean to to take it completely away from something. Let's say you have positive information on something from well, let's say you have a group of people and you get a bu- you get po positive information about some product and it's written by Trying to think of a polarizing figure. Say, it's, say you have a Dick Cheney writing some po- positive information about a product that nobody knows about, and/or Nancy Pelosi writing some positive. Well, you're going to have a lot of people who have a very negative idea of those two individuals, and they may say, "Well, if, if Dick Cheney thinks this is great, there's got to be something wrong with it." Or if Nancy Pelosi thinks this is great, there's no way I want to buy this product. I mean, so that could have that could have been done, in I, afterwards, I mean, we started when we were trying to figure it out. All it was, Lou Dobbs was coming on and railing about. He, when he talks fair trade, he uh, he doesn't talk about that stuff. He talks our American workers getting the short end of the deal with whatever's going on. And so that that indeed could have been what was going on. So was mentioned, in hindsight, we would have loved to have known, but. Uh, a we didn't think about it, even if we did. we could have probably thrown a question or two in there, but it's it's really tough. I mean, you're really tight on time when you pay somebody ten dollars and you tell them ten to fifteen minutes okay that's not so yeah yeah that's it's not so bad, and we were I mean really, I guess in this one that we're doing we they have twenty questions at the beginning mm-hmm. that they do, and then. There's some, uh, the interviewers administer another 16 or so at the end. And it's still, if it's one or two people, it usually takes about 16, 17 minutes. That one, we say it's 15 minutes. We don't say, that's for the cigarettes, you yeah. know. So we don't, the, having the interviewers administer them, surprise, and I, I hadn't done this before, but it really goes, I think it actually goes faster because they don't have, some people are not the fastest readers. and. You can ask them the questions. I don't know. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to take this. I
2: was wondering, has there been much work done um, where this is placed in the context of maybe people are shown shown something first, some image, some video, or
1: I know there has been for reading because that's a, a lot of the genetically modified stuff. Not what I showed here, but uh, they were, I had oh, participants <coughs> bidding on non-genetically modified and then genetically modified, or to be more precise, plain-labeled and GM-labeled and, uh, GM products. And different participants either got positive information from biotech companies, negative information from Greenpeace, uh, or what we called verifiable information from a group that had no financial ties to either side of the argument. And the information made a huge difference. I mean, the people who got the the information from Greenpeace and the people who got from the information from uh, Monsanto—that you would. Think that they were bidding on completely different things. I mean, the, those who got the Greenpeace, they bid half as much for the genetically modified products. Those who got the information from Monsanto only bid the same amount. So that, for videos, I don't know that any, I don't know of a study that's done that. Uh, it doesn't mean there isn't one out there now, but it certainly could be done very easily. I mean, instead of having participants read, we could have perhaps showed videos to different groups. You could. Um, I mean, could there, there's a fair number of things, I mean, priming in one way or another or showing irrelevant information and how does that, I mean, there are studies on pricing that if people walk by, <coughs> um, before, and this one group, I think this was just a great study, before they, they did a bidding experiment with people, but before the table right next, all they, they varied, the table right next to them had sweaters for sale, and they varied the price of the sweaters for sale on the next table. So uh, for some participants it said $50, and some it said 18 And the price, of, and if for those who $50, they were willing to actually bid a little bit more, figuring they like, see a $50, uh, I can't even remember. But it, wasn't like it, was an irrele- it was completely irrelevant. Wow. The title of it's like bidding, how does an irrelevant price matter or, on that. So there's all sorts of things that can matter. One thing that helps control that is if you get bids on two similar products. So. If they come in, if somebody comes in and, I mean, for cigarettes, I mean, whatever they're bringing in that day, if they have lower demand for cigarettes that day, presumably they'll have lower demand for both, and if you're examining the difference, that should cancel out. Uh, but the context they bring in...
2: One range that prompted to think about their mortality, they're more likely to vote conservatively hmm. and liberally. So you can manipulate what people, their preference for candidates based on sort of seemingly irrelevant. Seemingly,
1: sure. That gives them a little bit of mindset as they approach it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, the the irrelevant stuff, seemingly irrelevant stuff, well, not always irrelevant. <laughs> Any other questions or so much. This was
0: really thank Yeah, thank you.